Well, good morning, church. It's an honor and a privilege for me to be here, and I, I would like to talk today about um, the life that we live as Christians and the path that we choose. And I was listening to, I believe he was the vice president of medical affairs, um, Zeno Charles Marcel, who's here visiting Loma Linda for the Global Health Conference. And he was telling me he has been hearing reports from students at Loma Linda who are in the religion classes at Loma Linda that some of the religion teachers, one of the religion teachers said, I am a Seventh-day Adventist, but I am not a Christian. I am a follower of Christ, but I'm not a Christian because Christians frequently don't do what they claim to be doing, and I don't want to associate myself with them. Um, and it's true that we often don't do what we should be doing, but I think for a religion teacher to say, I am not a Christian, um, is kind of a more than slightly interesting statement to hear. And I think it can lead to confusion in the eyes of the students. Now, there seems to be this concept that although other people in the church are making mistakes, I myself am not making any mistakes. Only all of you are, and that's because uh, I happen to be so much smarter than you, and I work so much harder, and I have a better education or any number of other reasons that people have for claiming that they're not, they're better, they're not making mistakes. Or people can claim they're not making mistakes because they're elders or pastors, or maybe they have some personal excuses like, I never meant to hurt anyone. Um, I was only trying to help, um, or I was born that way. Or maybe your philosophy is the Old Testament was harsh, but the New Testament was kind and forgiving. And Christ came to correct the flaws of the Old Testament. So we want to be New Testament Christians and do away with all of the uh, problems in the Old Testament, the judgmentalism. And so we can take any one of these reasons to determine that we're doing better when in fact we're really not. Now, we tend to be, I think we tend to be over, overly judgmental. And I've heard, for example, uh, pastors give a sermon and I'll ask someone afterwards, well, what did you think of the sermon? And they'll say, well, it was okay, but HMS Richards and Mark Finley preach much better sermons. And when you have that kind of attitude, then no sermon is ever good enough, okay? And when we listen to a sermon, we actually have to be, make the assumption that the Holy Spirit is guiding the words of the person who's speaking, even if they're not Mark Finley, even if it's a local pastor, or even if, I mean, when I give sermons and I ask people what they think of it, I get an earful. They say, well, and then they launch into all the faults of the sermon. So, but we need to give people the benefit of the doubt that 
the Holy Spirit is guiding and leading. And if you do that, then you're willing to look for some wisdom in the sermon. So anybody can give a good sermon because it's not merely um, Pastor Skoritz or James Trott or Mark Finley or Rodney Turner or who, who's ever speaking. It's not really them. We assume that the Holy Spirit is guiding them. So we need to give people the benefit of the doubt. I think the same goes through with our education. I've heard of people having problems because they went to a non-accredited school. And, um, or I used to work at Massachusetts Institute of Technology where the people there are very well educated and we'd have group discussions and I would come up with an idea and the other PhD, the PhDs there would go, hmm, that's an interesting idea. Where did you say you went to school? In other words, they would try to use the college that I went to. I only had a master's degree. They had PhDs. They would try to use that college. I went to some little school. It was Cal Poly Pomona to get my master's to prove that my ideas were no good and that it wasn't worth listening to. So we can use, we have a habit of elevating ourselves and depressing those around us, which I think is a, is a terrible sin. Now, the truth is we're all human and we are all very seriously flawed. And we need to be, it is only Christ who can forgive us and only Christ who can strengthen us. So we really need to be much more humble. Now, when I, I think about religion teachers who claim that they're not Christians because they see the faults in the Christian church, it gives me, that worries me because if you read the Bible, um, the prophets and the leaders and wise men in the Old Testament, many of them were human. Elijah ran away from, um, what was the woman's name who he ran away? Is it? Yeah, so he, um, Jezebel, he ran away from Jezebel. Jonah ran away from his responsibilities. David sinned, he committed murder. Um, Peter denied his Lord. And even the prophets who had direct communication with God, they often were confused and bewildered. It says in 1 Peter, they're talking about the salvation of Christ. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, searched diligently to try to determine the meaning of these things. So sometimes even those who had direct communication didn't understand the messages. Sometimes Mrs. White would get a message and she would relay it to the elders, but she herself would say, I'm not sure what it means. Now, usually she did, but there were a few times she didn't. So the truth of the matter is that even prophets and messengers and kings erred in the Bible. And God didn't sweep them away and just get rid of them and say, you're not good enough, we're going to get rid of you. So we need to keep in mind that those around us are not perfect. And if we're going to claim, I'm not going to belong to your church, I'm not going to call my, myself a Christian, if any of you have any faults, I think is very immature 
They're very childish. That would be like a doctor saying, and I've actually heard doctors say this, or I should say dentists say this, I don't want to go there because there's sick people there. Or that person is really sick, they don't belong here. You know, can you imagine a doctor saying, well, you're really sick and I think it would be better if you didn't come. Well, that's why people go to the hospital. And it just baffles me to hear, to hear doctors or dentists say, well, I don't want to see that person because they're sick. Or a pastor saying, or a religion teacher saying, um, there are sinners in the, in the Christian church, so I am not going to associate myself with them. I think that is, is, is extremely childish. But so we need to realize that we're all imperfect, and our goal is not to find the faults in others, but to, to look to ourselves and say, how can I be doing a better job? Now, that's something that I personally need to do. Um, I'm the treasurer of the church, and I'll have to say in all honesty, I'm probably the worst treasurer we've ever had because I'm usually behind. But even saying that I'm the worst treasurer we ever had is still quite a compliment because we've had some really good treasurers here. Uh, they've all, as far as I know, have been very meticulously, scrupulously honest. And I can't say that about a lot of other churches I've been. When we were in the Caribbean, uh, the treasurer of, of the local college there embezzled $1.2 million. And uh, I mean, I could tell you stories like that all day long about embezzlement that went on. Uh, especially overseas, it's very common. Frequently, the pay in Bangladesh, where I worked, the pastors used to go to the bank. They'd send one pastor to the bank to pick up the payroll for all the other pastors, and then he would travel 100 miles to the local district and pay the other pastors. And that money was frequently stolen because as he's traveling on the bus, like he had a briefcase and he put the money under the seat of the, of the bus and ride the bus. And then when he get, would get ready to get off, he'd look down and the briefcase would be gone. Or so he said. Yeah. And uh, they used to have money stolen all the time. And finally the conference said, if you pick up the money and it's stolen, you are responsible for it. And suddenly all the money stopped being stolen. It was, it was incredible how that just that one statement from the local con from the conference and the money was no longer stolen uh, because they actually made the pastors make up the difference they docked their salary so there's a lot of you know I, I think I'm in very good company here to be the worst treasurer of the church I, I, I still take that as a compliment but um, but we do have room for improvement now what it gives me in, in great encouragement is that the Lord is very patient with us. And when he, for example, take Jonah. Jonah was asked to go to, to uh, Nineveh, and where did he go? He went the other way and, and tried running away. But the Lord was very patient with him, and he had him thrown overboard and swallowed by a big fish or a well or whatever it was, finally spit up on land. Now imagine being in the belly of a whale or a big fish for uh, overnight. Can, imagine 
all the depressing thoughts that would go through your mind. And, and I mean, it would just be a really horrible. But Jonah went through that. He was spit up on, on land, and he went and delivered his message. And uh, the people of Nin, of uh, they repented. They repented, and Jonah was very bitterly disappointed that they repented. <laughs> And uh, he, he was beside himself because he said, I knew this would happen. I knew you'd forgive them. How can you forgive these horrible people? But the Lord did. So, but the Lord uh, forgave the people of Nineveh. And my hope is that the Lord can forgive me too and help me and everyone else in the church to overcome their faults. That's the reason that we are Christians is not because... You, I'm not a Christian because you're all perfect or because I'm perfect. I'm a Christian because it is my hope that God will lead us into situations where we are going to stumble and fall because he, he knows we're just flesh and bones. But he's going to not condemn us, but try to strengthen us and pick us up and help us to do better. So, so our goal is not to condemn those around us not to judge them, but to encourage them. I've been a dentist for 34 years, and I've come to the conclusion what people need more than anything is encouragement. If I can offer my patients some kind of a hope, they'll keep coming back and they'll stick with us and they'll go through agony and pain. Um, I mean... Every time I work on a patient, I take a nice long needle and I stick it into somebody through their muscles. It's nice and painful. And these people hold perfectly still. They don't move. And that astonishes me that, that I, I'm almost a stranger to some of these people and they let me stick needles in them and they don't move. Now, that takes an incredible amount of self-discipline and a lot of trust on their part. Their hope is that somehow, through all this suffering, they're going to get better. And we ourselves go through those kind of experiences. I mean, I look at, for example, my performance as treasure, and I'm called to mind a passage by the president of, of, a, of IBM who said, you have to fail 100 times before you learn to be a success. So I'm on uh, my probably, I'm on, on number 20 or 30 by now. I still have a long way to go. But we all fail, we all stumble, but we succeed not because of our strength, but because of God's strength. And so when I see people around me that are struggling, they're trying to overcome difficulties, I'm hopeful for them, not because they're necessarily more brilliant or wiser or clever or richer. No, but because they're letting God work through their lives. And that's what gives me hope that they will eventually succeed, is that God is going to help them overcome every problem. And, and I don't know how he's going to do that, but my hope is that he will. That's not to say there won't be times of anguish. There will be, but... I think God will overcome. And I, I recall to mind a dental student who sent some lab work to an outside lab under the instructions 
of one of the teachers in the dental school, but the clinic director found out that it was going to an outside lab. And by the way, the lab work was being done by the clinic director's son. They had hired the clinic director's son to be the lab technician, so I assume the clinic director uh, wanted this lab work done by his son, so his son would have a job. Anyway, a student sent some work outside, and they kicked the student out of school forever. They said it was an ethics violation. And I thought that was a little bit harsh because the student had been told to do this by one of the instructors. I think in a court of law, the student would have been vindicated. But the ethics committee at the school decided that the student had violated the, the ethical requirements of the school by going to an outside lab. And I went to the dean and I said, you know, this is really harsh. Um, the student was told to do this by a teacher at the school. And the dean responded, well, we told the teacher not to do that anymore. Well, that, you know, that still doesn't give you grounds to throw it out. And so I talked to the dean for a while, and he goes, well, you know, you're not the only one that's said that maybe we were a little harsh. So I think uh, we'll just suspend her for one school year, and then she can come back. So they eventually let the student in. I still think they were really harsh, but she came back, and nobody knew how to relate to her. Should they stay away from her because she's kind of, you know, maybe done something wrong? So I asked this student to work on my mother-in-law. And she started working on my mother-in-law, and she would introduce the patient to the other instructors. This is Dr. Trott's family member, mother-in-law. And everybody goes, oh, wow, you know, because normally students don't work on family members of the faculty unless the students are really well-trusted. And so they started saying, oh, she must be really good if she's working on a faculty member's family. And people started respecting her a lot more. And I think that encouraged her a lot because she started getting respect. The other faculty members started going, oh, oh, that's really nice, you know, that you're doing that. And I felt that that helped the situation somewhat. But whatever situation we're in, we have to try to find a way to encourage those around us. And sometimes when, when I, I'm in situations like that, I'm always going, what on earth? can we do to encourage this person? Because we're all very human. We all make mistakes. I mean, if I was slapped down every time I made a, made a mistake, I wouldn't be here. But fortunately, God is very merciful. So I think that we need to ask ourselves, how can we encourage those around us and how can we correct our own faults to, so that our performance is acceptable to the Lord? Now, it's not our job to condemn, criticize, and accuse. That's the devil's job. And he, he does that very well. 
And so that's not what we've been called to do. Our, we've been called to try to help to be a blessing and to improve those around us. Now, another thing that, that has been impressed upon me is that each of us has a calling in life. Um, at the recent meeting for the um, Global Health Conference, one of the members got up and said that being a doctor is as much a calling as being a minister. It's something you're called to do. Now, and each of you has a different calling. Some of you are called to be mothers or fathers or sons or daughters or teachers or ministers or, or plumbers or whatever you were, whatever gift you were given. And I think the Lord wants us to develop those gifts. He doesn't want us to bury them in the ground. Even though there's many obstacles to us developing those gifts, he wants us to develop them. And have any of you heard of William Ellis Foy or Hazen Foss? Okay. Before Ellen White received her visions, her guidance of the Holy Spirit, there was a man named William Ellis Foy who received four visions, and he actually, he was, a, I believe, a Baptist minister. He actually gave these messages to the, his church but he stopped telling them, and he just, historically, we're not exactly sure, but he just kind of stopped giving this message out, and after that point, he had no more visions. It just stopped, and he, there are some that claim that he became proud, and he thought those visions were his own, and maybe that's why they stopped, but that's, the historians are arguing about that. So anyway, his vision stopped, and then a man named Hazen Foss came along, and he had very similar visions, but he refused to tell them to his church. And he felt that if he presented these messages, he would be laughed at and ridiculed, so he refused to give them. And eventually, he became very withdrawn, and he said he became depressed, and he said, I'm a lost man because he didn't develop the gifts that, that the Lord gave him. Now, I want to read to you. Uh, I hope I didn't lose him here. Um, some of the messages a conversation between Hazen Foss and Ellen White actually took place. And this is from First Bio, page 66. I guess this is one of the documents that they have at the General Conference. The next morning, in Ellen White's sister's home, she met Hazen Foss, who told Ellen his story. Sometime before the first vision was given to Ellen in December, the Lord had given such a vision to Hazen. He had been instructed that he was to tell others what God had revealed to him. However, he felt he had been deceived by the disappointment of 1844. So he was a little bit like weary and, and leery of this whole thing. He knew, too, that ridicule and scorn would come to anyone 
who claimed to have a vision from God. So he refused to obey the prompting of God's Holy Spirit. Again, again, the Lord came to him in a vision, and he was instructed that if he refused to bear the message, heaven would give him to the people. If he refused to bear the message, the Lord would reveal it to someone else, placing his spirit on the weakest of the weak, which I think was a reference to who? Ellen White, the weakest of the weak. Okay, but Hazen still felt he could not bear the burden and the reproach of standing before the people to prevent a vision from God. He told the Lord that he would not do it. Then very strange feelings came over him, and a voice said, you have grieved away the Holy Spirit. This frightened Hazen. Horrified by his own stubbornness and rebellion, he told the Lord that he would now relate the vision. He called a meeting of the Adventists for this very purpose. When the people came together, he recounted his experience. He tried to recount his experience, but he could not bring anything to mind. It had all been forgotten. Even the most concentrated effort he made, he could not recall a single word of the vision. He cried out in distress, it's gone from me. I can say nothing, and the Spirit of the Lord has left me. Those who were present described the meeting as the most terrible meeting they were ever in. As Hazen talked with Ellen that February morning in Poland, Michigan, in Poland, Maine, he told her that although he had not gone, well, anyway, let me just read what it, closing, he says, I was proud. I was unreconciled to disappointment. I murmured against God and wished myself dead. Then I had strange feelings come over, come over me. I shall be henceforth dead to spiritual things. I believe the vision was taken from me and given to you. That is, he's talking to Ellen White. And then he goes on to say, do not refuse to obey God for it will be at the peril of your own soul. I myself am a lost man. That's what Hazen Foss said. So I think God gives all of us a work to do, a vision. And if we bury it in the ground, if we don't develop it, then I think God will take it away from us and we may end up like Hazen Foss, feeling like we're lost. So it's, it's really important for us to try to develop the gifts that we've been given. Now, I know this is very sobering to hear, and it can be discouraging, but I believe God will give us the strength to go on. And, and I know I myself have made mistakes. I'm hoping that you as the church will forgive me for those, but I, it is my hope that the Lord will strengthen me and just like Jonah and um, others in the Old Testament, Isaiah, that he'll give us all the strength to go on and eventually become a success. And our job is to try to not condemn each other, but to try to encourage each other to do better. Because we all make mistakes, we all fail. Um, I used to work for a neurosurgeon, and he told me that the average neurosurgeon 
dies at the age of 55 because the stress of half of the patients they're working on die on the operating table because they have patients with gunshot wounds to the head, auto accidents where the head is crushed in, and a lot of those people perish. But the stress of working on them, trying to save their life, is incredibly severe. That's incredible stress to be under. And eventually it gets to them and destroys them. Um, we can't, there's a lot of burdens we can't bear. I think watching someone die in front of you who you are responsible to care for would be an incredibly crushing blow. So I think all of us have to bear burdens. We've lost a loved one. We have to go through hardships. But remember that those around you are going through hardships. And your job is not to criticize, to complain, to condemn, but your job is to encourage them, to lift them up and to make them better and to stretch yourself to find ways of helping them. Now, I'll just close with a brief story about, I work at Loma Linda and my job is to get supplies and equipment for students going on mission trips. And the dean promised that I would be paid full time to do this, but in reality, I only got paid four hours a week to do it. And I put a lot more time into it than I'm paid to do it. And I actually end up spending more money than they pay me replacing the instruments that the students lose or give away. So I lose money doing this, but I keep doing it because it allows me to help others. And that's our goal. Our goal is always put yourself in a position where you can be a blessing to others. For, and I'll, I'll tell you a story, something that happened yesterday. I'm in charge of this little warehouse. It's about the size of this sanctuary, and we store dental supplies and equipment there. And I walked into the warehouse one day, and there was this big box sitting on the table where they deliver supplies, UPS delivers. And I opened it up, and it was filled with dental handpieces. And I figured there was, let's see, there was about ten dollars or $15,000 worth of handpieces in there. I hadn't ordered them, and I went to the school and I asked them, did you order this? And they said, no, we didn't order it. Nobody knew anything about it. And there was no, re actually, the box that it came in, someone had thrown away the original box, put it in a new box, there was no return address on it. There was nothing, there was no information. So there was all this supplies that we got for free. And I, this was really expensive equipment. And we normally, I don't give equipment like that to the students because they lose it, they throw it away. These hand pieces were about $700 each. And I can buy Chinese hand pieces for $15, which is more, you know, 20, 30 times cheaper. So I give the students the cheaper ones, and they use them, and they lose them, and break them, and it doesn't matter because it's so inexpensive. But the, what do I do with these expensive ones? Well, some missionaries have come in for global health, and they work in poor countries, and they don't have equipment, they don't have supplies, so yesterday, one of the missionaries came to our home, 
and I gave him a set of these hand pieces, high speeds and low speeds, and he was like overwhelmed. He was like, wow, this is really a wonderful blessing. And so by being in charge of this warehouse, I'm able to help people that I wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And even though it's a very difficult job and I have to go in one, two, sometimes three Sundays a month to work, I, it, I still think overall it's a blessing. So I think that's just one example of how if you accept a responsibility, even if it's one you don't want and you're not really paid well for, you can still be a blessing to others. And we should always strive to accept responsibilities and even if we fail, try to grow in them and use that position to be a blessing to others. So I'd like to encourage all of you, if you're, if you're asked to do something that you don't know how to do or don't want to do, don't necessarily say no. Try to persevere. You'll be criticized for your failings, but be hopeful that the Lord will strengthen you and eventually give you success. Amen. All right. So why don't we have a closing prayer and um, then we can go get a bite to eat here. Dear Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are so merciful to us, the mere mortals that we are, and that you, even when we make mistakes, when we fail, you stand beside us and lift us up and strengthen us and help us to try to do better. Help us not to get discouraged, but to always press forward knowing that you in your strength and your wisdom will help us to overcome every obstacle. And we pray that you will make us a source of encouragement to those around us rather than a source of discouragement. For these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.